Inez recently released her memoir, Life After Windows, for the 20th anniversary of September 11th. Inez had her dream job working in the North Tower until one day it was gone. She has gone through many ups and downs recovering from this dreadful day, but her greatest joy in life has been becoming a mother to two beautiful children. Inez is also one of the few people in the world to pass the Level 3 Court of Masters Sommelier's Advanced Exam. She will discuss her journey through life post 9-11 and how she has continued to grow into an inspiring woman. everyone. Welcome back to Lady Empire. I have such an amazing guest here with me today. Inez, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So I first just want to start with you telling us a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing and if this sort of affected your career path in any way. Yeah, I actually had not thought about it until you asked. And it really did. I um, had an unusual upbringing for um, where I was. I grew up in Tarbury, where I am right now, which uh, even in 2021 is a little shy of 11,000 population. So super small town in rural eastern North Carolina. And um, my mother and father divorced when my sister and I were three and four. And um didn't hear a lot about divorce then uh, in 1979 uh, or 1980, and certainly not where the dad ended up raising the children. So um, I grew up with my dad and both sets of grandparents in my small town. And um, my paternal grandmother was just the hostess with the mostess. (laughs) She loved to entertain and like the biggest way. And um, my maternal grandmother did it kind of on a a, a lower scale um, with just, you know, a couple of people, but my my paternal grandmother would have very large parties. And, um, you know, even as a 10 year old, if I was at her house, I would pass the peanuts or uh, the cheese straws or whatever it was that she wanted me to pass. And as I got a little older, she would let me um, serve her wine from the box, uh, only the greatest kind, the Franzia Chablis or um, White Gryffindel. And so, um, I, you know, I didn't know it then, but I kind of was raised to um, to serve, you know. Absolutely. Oh, and that's such a great story too. I love, you know, it's kind of just hearing about where people come from and, you know, it sort of makes people who they are. Um, and we're going to dive more into your story in regards to serving and hosting and just all those, all those fun things. Um, but I want to know how you got from North Carolina to New York City. How did that sort of transpire and what made you move to that area? Yeah, so I was a journalism major at Chapel Hill. And um, from, you know, my first restaurant job in Tarboro, I was a server at the Golden Corral. And I got to Chapel Hill. I was a server at Pizza Inn. I always had restaurant work. But um, really, journalism was my was my love, uh, or so I thought. 
And so the summer after my sophomore year in college, I got an internship in Washington, D.C. at the United States Information Agency, which is through the Voice of America. And I was in the South American network and um, I wasn't getting paid. And so um, getting an apartment for the summer wasn't really an option. And my father had a cousin who lived in D.C. and said she'd be happy to house me um, and would I be interested in cooking for her and her husband and her, her daughter? And I had never cooked. Um, both my mother and my stepmother um, don't love cooking. And maybe chicken tetrazzini with cream of mushroom soup. You know, that was like <laughs> a big feat for them. Um, but uh, they weren't cooks. And so I hadn't grown up cooking either. But that summer, I had this amazing opportunity um, with, uh, she gave me the joy of cooking cookbook and I would go to the grocery store and just kind of create I don't know how good it was <laughs> but they ate it and, Ooh, and, awesome. and and through living with this cousin she said you know there's culinary school for you know if you're serious and I had never even heard that term um so I came home and I said to my dad let's forget about Carolina I'd like to drop out and I want to enroll in culinary school. And he said, hot jokes on you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You will not drop out of Carolina. <laughs> You'll go back. And um, next summer, I want you to work in a professional kitchen. So I did it for the summer and, and still said I wanted, I wanted to go to culinary school. And at this point, I had never been north of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, so very North Carolina, you know, my whole, I was dating a, a guy who was in finance and all on board for the MRS degree, you know, uh, ready, ready for marriage or so I thought. And, um, he was moving up to New York to, okay, he had gotten an M&A job at a, a small French firm in Rockefeller center. And so I said, well, I'll go up there. I know there's a culinary school in New York. And we found one that was fit our budget, you know, that was in the city. Um, and, moved up there, apartment unseen. Um, I did not live with the boyfriend. That was way too, you know, taboo. Too much. Um, yep, <laughs> too much. Um, but four girls from North Carolina and I got an apartment in Hell's Kitchen. And um, yeah, the the culinary school, that that's what took me to New York, a combination of wanting to go to culinary school and following um, this person uh, that... that <laughs> that later did not become my person. But, yeah. um, <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so now I want to know a little bit about Windows on the World. So tell us, um, for those listeners who don't know what it is, who have never heard about it, tell us kind of how you found it and your experience working there. Yeah. Well, so while I was in culinary school, I found a part-time job at a wine store on the Upper East Side, which is like right where the subway dropped me off. And again, had no idea that there were jobs in wine. Um, and by the time culinary school had ended, I realized I liked to drink more than I liked to cook. <laughs> and uh, it was about that time that I had read an article in the New York Times about a woman named Andrea Emmer who's now Andrea Emma Robinson, but she was the beverage director at Windows on the World and also had just um, received the prestigious Master Sommelier um, pen. And so Windows on the World was, at the time, the largest grossing restaurant in North America with one of the largest wine lists on the eastern seaboard. 
And it was at the top of One World Trade Center, which was the North Tower. And that was the one with the um, antenna on it. And, you know, open seven nights a week, 365 days a year, including Christmas, Thanksgiving. Wow. <laughs> you name it, it was open. And um, the reputation at the time, you know, it had always kind of been, oh, it's a tourist trap because of the views. But they had invested in a new chef who'd been there, can't remember when he came, but it was probably four or five years earlier, um, named Chef Michael LaMonaco from the 21 Club. And they were trying to make sure that the um, food matched the views, which, as you can imagine, was super hard for a 500-person dining room. You know, I mean, huge amount of covers. Um, on Christmas Day and Thanksgiving, when we were open for lunch and dinner, it was it was not unusual to do 1,400 covers. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah, and the service, you know, with captains and assistant captains and, you know, the, the sommelier staff where all wine service was performed on a Garadon. Um, it was really wow. quite, quite um, you know, the place. Right. And um, when I was reading about Andrea, I thought that sounds like exactly who I want to be, where I want to be, uh, how I want to be doing it. And so I cold called her. And, um, you know, they had a massive switchboard at Windows because um, they employed close to 500 people. And I said, you know, may I speak with Andrea Emmer? And they, you know, connected me to her office and she answered. And <laughs> um, she said, you know, don't quit your day job. We don't have anything for you, but fax me your resume. And if something opens up, um, we will call you. And so I did. And I waited. For a very long time, but eventually the call came and um, she said they were opening up a new small boutique restaurant at the top of the uh, at the top of the World Trade Center that would be right when the elevator doors opened and it was going to be called Wild Blue and it was going to be, you know, have all these wines by the glass and they needed a hostess. And so would I come up and interview for the hostess? And I thought, oh my God, I don't want to be a hostess. Yeah. I, want, I want to be you. <laughs> um, but my father said, get up there and, you know, let them see how good you're, you are at something you don't love. And they'll, they'll believe in how good you will be at something you do. And so literally the day I went to interview, it was a Friday afternoon in February of 99. She, as soon as the team met me, she said, we've had an assistant seller master resign. Would you like to interview for that position instead? And again, you know, timing, just yes. being in the right place at the right time. That was a huge part of my, my journey. So, wow. Um, yeah. And oh. assistant seller master sounds more glorious than it is, but it really translated to minimum wage paid box mover. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I did not, I didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. That's a great story. Um, so I want to talk about now sort of a very difficult experience that you went through. Um, obviously working at windows on the world, um, it truly was affected in nine 11. And so you know, I know it's probably super difficult for you to share some things about that day and days following, but um, as much as you can share, we would love to listen and learn um, from your experience. So can you just walk us through 
where you were that day um, and kind of what happened um, with your experience on 9-11? Yeah. um, So I had come home for the weekend of the 8th because my sister was getting married and I was the maid of honor in her wedding. And, um, you know, the beauty of being from divorced parents is that you go spend some time with one of them better be spending equal amount of time with the other. And so, um, this was my sister on my dad's side. And so I had spent, you know, Thursday through Saturday night with them and Sunday morning, my mother had asked me to go and spend some time with her before I flew back on Wednesday, the 12th. And so we were in the mountains with her friends, um, and their children and, and my sister, my other sister. And, um, we had gone out to eat dinner on the night and, um, you know, I had to be up early every day that I worked. And so I was totally enjoying this time sleeping late. And I was in this little bedroom with twin beds that uh, you could completely black out the light, have like really dark curtains. And um, you didn't know that the sun was coming up. And I woke up and my mother was over me and she was crying. And um, I thought it was my grandmother. And um, my mother said, you need to come and watch the TV. And at that point, um, only the North Tower had been hit. I think that's right. I always, um, yeah, the North Tower had been hit. Um, And I think it was right in that moment, you know, all the news had had, um, put put the cameras on the, or distant, distant of the, of the, trade centers. And then, um, the South tower was hit. I think I'm getting that right. Um, and, um, I was so naive because I was thinking, I just cleaned up that office. And now when I get back, I'm going to have the biggest mess to clean up just completely oblivious to the fact that people could be, um, people could be hurt. People could be, you know, trapped, just almost, um, this, uh, unwillingness to believe that anything was life. There was nothing life changing in, in my first, my first moments. Right. Um, and when I say moments, they were probably seconds, right? Not minutes. Um, And so I started calling my office over and over and over again. And it was just a busy signal because the lines were all down. And um, my boyfriend at the time, who was the sommelier at Windows, he lived in Jersey City. And I was calling his apartment over and over. And it was just ringing, ringing, ringing. Um, And just not getting, being able to get in touch with people. And, you know, for me, I'm just, I need to know, right? I need to, I need to hear. Right. Um, and I finally called my friend who's a native New Yorker who lived on the Upper West Side and she answered and she was crying. And I was so mad that she was crying because this woman was a, an attorney turned sommelier. She was older than I was. She's very, um, you know, tough. And when I heard her crying, I just thought, wow, um, it's kind of 
something is really the matter. Right. And um, then when the first tower started imploding, I um, I said to my mom, I, I have to leave. We have to go. And so we got in the car to drive back to Tarboro, which is about a four-hour trip. And um, I think my mother and my sister, no one knew what to do, what was going on. And, um, you know, that time I didn't have a cell phone. I had a pager um, from work. And um, for those four hours, you know, we weren't speaking to anyone you know it's not like now where you're in the car and um and I think we went back and forth between having the radio on and just turning it off and um we got to my grandmother's house in Tarboro and my dad and my stepmom were waiting there which was also really surprising because they were supposed to be at the beach after this wedding relaxing and and I was like what are you doing here and you know, they were terrified mm-hmm. that, I mean, when I, when I think about what they were going through, they were at the beach and all this family was calling and saying, where's Ani? Where's Ani? And, you know, they knew where I was. They knew I was safe, but just the, I guess, just the thought of knowing like just missing it, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't remember being really um, sad that day in terms of, um, you know, crying. And I'm a crier <laughs> as you think I cry all the time, but me too. I was, <laughs> I was just in such denial, you know, um, really trying to wrap my head in and adamant that I get Steven. Like, you know, I was like, we have to figure out how to get Steven. And my mom was like, you can't go to New York right now. Firstly, they're not letting anyone in the city. Mm-hmm. So you can't get there. And, and you don't have a car. And, um, so I do think of that time in my life where I slept a lot. I couldn't wait to go to bed that night because I, I, I guess I thought if I wake up tomorrow morning, there's like a very small chance that this will be a dream. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, that was kind of that day. I, I spoke to um, a woman, Maggie, whose boyfriend had worked in the um, beverage department with me, who was there. And I remember talking to her and just like not making any sense. And she was asking me, could Jeff have been there anywhere else in the building? And, and I was like, the reality is he could have, he, he could have been in the basement, you know? And then I thought maybe he's in the basement and he'll be, a, he'll be the one, you know, who survived. Um, mm-hmm. And, and Stephen, my husband now, who um, was my boyfriend at the time, who's also an employee of windows. Um, who's the sommelier. You know, he um, he will say that he was constantly um, thinking about, you know, why I wasn't there, you know, because I would have been there. And and I really never let my mind go go that direction. Um, maybe I did 
underneath and just didn't know, but I don't remember going to bed thinking I could have been there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it, it came out in other ways, just like with deep despair of, you know, knowing who, who was lost. And Right. Wow. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, what you and your husband and your family all went through that day and weeks and months following that. And, you know, that's something I also want to ask you is, you know, after losing friends and colleagues and your job at that point, how did you sort of cope with that? And maybe you went through guilt or regret or extreme sadness or, you know, whatever it was that you were feeling. How did you begin to start to grow again and find purpose within your life after 9-11? Yeah, you know, I didn't, I did not cope in the healthiest of ways, <laughs> knowing, knowing what I know now, uh, you know, I should have gotten therapy, like, <laughs> you know, that should have been step number one. And, and again, it, you know, part of my upbringing is that a lot of people in the South are, and not anymore, but a lot of the people in my life in the South, I, I need to be careful about that. A lot of people <laughs> in my life, where I was from, you know, didn't do therapy. Right. You know? Um, and so I don't remember anyone saying you should go seek out some therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and maybe they did. And maybe I just said, no, I mean, there's that too. I I don't remember a lot of, um, I, I remember shutting down in a way that when people were talking to me, I was not even receiving, you know, I'm, I I wasn't, um, I wasn't interested in hearing what they had to say. And so, Mm -hmm. um, my, um, normal choice for how to get through things is to be as busy as I can possibly be. Um, and that for me was work and, you know, I went back to work in a, in a big management position, like in November and it was a disaster. (laughs) You know, I, um, cry. Yeah. I woke up actually, I was crying when I woke up. How does that happen? Um, couldn't get through the day without having some type of just mental breakdown. And I, I was pretty, um, private in that I would be, you know, go to the bathroom or leave. Um, it was a, I was opening a restaurant in a hotel in Times Square and, um, I was, um, pretty guarded. Um, but I do remember, um, and, and the guy who owned this restaurant group, he was, um, very successful, very, um, stern, you know, he, he didn't have a lot of patience for inefficiency. And, um, one Sunday I went to the headquarters, which was down in Soho to print these wine lists. And nobody was in this office space because it was a Sunday and I, the printer was jamming, couldn't get it to print on both sides. It was just not that big of a deal, but one of those things where, where I was and, and I ended up underneath the, the desk where the printer was in a fetal position, sobbing. And, and he came into the office of course on that Sunday and I, I am underneath, you know, on the floor. And I remember he was pretty shaken up, you know, 
seeing me like that. And he was so kind. Um, he got me in the car and he drove me back up to the restaurant. It was like, you know, we'll get the wine list settled. But it was just things like that where in a normal space that would have that wouldn't have happened. Um, but it was shortly after that that I said to Stephen, I don't think I can do this. And he, he said, that's fine. You know, it, you'll be OK. We'll, we'll get you, you know, we'll find something. And that's mm-hmm. when um, we decided to move back to Tarboro for the summer. And uh, we had already made plans to go to um, Burgundy to work the harvest at Dujac. And you see a train, uh, a theme here, right? Like I was always thinking of what we were going to be doing. Um, and I would, I would say, um, and I, I say this, I think in the memoir and in a, in at least one or two ways, I was not, um, um, a mentally healthy person until my daughter was born, um, Mm -hmm. on September 12th, 2004. So it was, um, it was three years of me just trying to, um, cope by making sure that I never had to think about it by being busy. And, um, you know, when Cynthia was born, I just remember thinking I am the luckiest person in the world and I have this gift to, to take take care of. And I've got to figure out, you know, I've got to figure out how to mom, but I've got to figure out how to be happy too. Um, and so that was just, um, it really turned into something spiritual for me. You know, I, again, I didn't get therapy until I was 40. (laughs) Um, but just, um, you know, after she was born and then my son was born, I just kind of had a, um, a re um reintroduction with um higher higher power right like mm-hmm. i always talk about that i i grew up with country club christianity you know i had no reason not to believe in jesus god because nothing bad had ever happened to me and um then on september 11th you know my faith was really rocked and shaken and um i kind of I'm careful about this because um, my views and, and my beliefs now are, are very different than they were, um, you know, 15 years ago when I had this spiritual awakening. But mm-hmm. it was um, just a time where I felt um, I kind of felt safe again. I think I felt so unsafe. For, um, you know, I remember walking down the streets in New York and plane is flying and I'm, you know, ducking or, or crouching and uh, you know <laughs> that was um that was kind of my, my whole existence up until Cynthia was born I just didn't feel safe mm-hmm. and it seems like almost like when your kids were born it was like a restart for you um you kind of got you know your slate was cleaned almost in a sense and that you could kind of restart loving again, feeling secure and safe. And, you know, I'm so happy that you got to experience that gift and to have two beautiful children to 
sort of ignite your life again. And that's amazing. I am I am as grateful for those two as I am for absolutely anything there is. So. Uh, it's so good to hear. Um, well, so you kind of mentioned a little bit how you and your husband um, moved to Burgundy for a while. And then when you guys came back, um, that's when you started on the square. Is that correct? Yeah. So we, my dad and a, a partner had purchased it right before we left for Burgundy and the closing date was like the day we came back. So oh, wow. uh, we, again, we're not going to have any downtime here. Yeah, <laughs> uh, That's a problem, by the way. I'd like to make sure everybody knows that that's not, I don't, I try not to do that anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, so we hit the ground running on October 15th of 2002 um, opening on the square. And it was, um, was purchased by a woman, Frances Liverman, who we loved, who owned it. And, um, she, so we just took over, um, and and changed, you know, it, it turned into something much, much more different than when she had owned it, but she stayed on with us, um, until, 2019. So she stayed with us 17 years and, wow. and ran the restaurant during lunch as if she owned it because she had. And it was, you know, I can't think of anything better um, for a restaurateur who's coming in and taking over, uh, you know, a business to have the person who owned it before who genuinely cares about it, just didn't want to have all the stress of it. Mm-hmm. you know, be your part, be your partner. That was just, you know, an amazing, amazing thing. And I want to just share with our listeners that, um, this restaurant on the square, it's wine list holds the prestigious best of award of excellence from wine spectator, which is phenomenal. And, you know, I want to ask how you got started, um, we're going to talk about this. Inez is a graduate of the Court of Master Sommelier, the advanced exam. And so did you start doing that while you were at On the Square? Did that come later on? Um, talk to us a little bit about how you pursued Sommelier Master. So uh, back at Windows, I took the introductory um, and passed. And at the time, you had to wait a year before you would sit for the advanced And so um, I actually, my time to take the advanced was um, the second week in October of 2001. So despite um, having any uh, sense and and like wherewithal, I proceeded to go out to California. Uh, Stephen and I rented a pickup truck and drove out there um, in October of 2001, where I failed the advanced portion. (laughs) <laughs> master's exam. Um, and so it was on that path um, when, when we opened on the square um, and continued that path for many, many years. Um, and, you know, again, I, since bestsellers, working at bestsellers, you know, on the Upper East Side, I've loved wine. And my husband also loves wine. And we were so, um, invigorated by how well Eastern North Carolina received our wine program. Um, 
you know, and we laugh because in New York or in more sophisticated markets, when you're talking to someone about a wine, you know, they needed Robert Parker or the wine spectator or the wine enthusiast to make sure that they were going to like the wine. They couldn't just like the wine, you Mm -hmm. know, and in Tarboro, we would have, I mean, completely esoteric wines by the glass. And we'd say, we really like this. This goes great with this. And they would say, we're game. And it's been like that since the beginning. And it's been such a joy. You know, we have, um, you know, so many customers who trust us to um, choose wines that they will like and that they will feel good about purchasing because they're in their limit, right? So we have wines still starting at $7 a bottle that we think are great wines that we would drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that has, um, I don't know if I give the Master Sommelier program uh, credit for that, um, but I, I certainly give them credit for the community that I was able to, to meet because of them. And for those of you who don't really know how prestigious it is to be a graduate of this Master Somalis program, it is extremely, extremely difficult to pass this exam and to be involved in this program. So tell us a little bit about the actual exam. You know, what are some of the things that go into this exam and what do you have to accomplish or do? So for the advanced portion, it is a written theory exam, which could include um, the bricks at harvest of Sauterne, you know, oh my <laughs> in God. 1979. Um, or, and that's one section of the theory, which is quite difficult. And then there is the service exam where you go into a mock dining room and at every table, there are master sommeliers. And um, one table is decanting. One table is champagne service. One table is um, mo- uh, getting a wine list and finding all the errors or corrections. Um, one wow. table is spirits um, or, or cocktails. Um, yeah, so it's, it's intense. And um, for my husband and I, who are both sweaters, we, sweat. <laughs> we, we, we pretty much sweat through our suits and suits in those, um, service exams. And then the third, um, is a blind tasting where you were in front of three master sommeliers and then one in the corner with a timer. And you have 25 minutes to identify six wines, um, three whites, three reds. And when I say identify, you have to name the grape or grapes that are made that make this wine the region where this wine is made. So you can't just say France. You would have to say Gigandas or Cote Roti. Um, and then the year when it was made. Um, and what's crazy about it is um, they have what they're, what are called markers. And markers would be, uh, just for an example, Sangiovese. A marker of Sangiovese is cranberry, leather, um, uh, tobacco. And if you don't say those, but you say Sangiovese, you still don't pass. So you, your deduction is as important as what your answer is. Um, and with the advanced, you have to pass all three at one time. Um, 
the, the difference with the masters is the masters, um, the exam, or the theory is oral instead of written. And you have three tries to pass all three. So there have been people who've passed, there have been very few people who passed all three at once and they're called a Krug Cup winner. Um, or there have been people who passed two parts one time, gone back the next year, couldn't pass the one, gone back the next year, couldn't pass it, and then they reset. So it, it's it's brutal. I, um, I'm i not a fan. I lost a lot of money and I lost a lot of... Um, um, confidence. <laughs> confidence, time away with my kids, my husband, my family. Um, but yeah, it, it's wow. brutal. That's so insane. I can't even imagine doing that. Um, and I also want to share with everyone that in 2009, Inez placed second runner up in the best sommelier in America competition that's held in New York City, which is so crazy. So tell us about this competition. Um, do you get invited to go to this? Do you apply to be a part of this? Tell us about you know, what goes into this competition? So this is put on by the American Sommelier Association, which is out of New York. And they encouraged, um, you know, sommeliers, especially those sitting for the masters to, to um, not necessarily apply, but just to enter, you know? Um, And so I can't remember how many of us, I thought it would be a great um, practice for me because at the time, I was um, heavily involved in trying to trying to pass my master's, um, and it was uh, the first day was wild. I mean, you had theory, but it was a lot of like food and wine pairing theory. You know, writing down why you thought I, I loved this test um, much more than I loved the, the MS, and that w- we had um, challenges like you had a bottle of champagne and you had, or actually you had a magnum of champagne and you had 20 glasses and you need to make sure each flute had the exact same amount of champagne in it with only one pour per glass. Uh, (laughs) um, We did a decanting. um, We had a decanting challenge and yeah, I did not have high hopes. I, I actually was, didn't put pressure on myself because I just thought, this is going to be great for, for practice. Um, and so I had scheduled my flight out the next afternoon because the next day we were going to go back and hear who the top four were. And then the, everybody else was eliminated and those top four would, um, go into like, I don't know, final round. Right. And so I went and they named, um, um, the four highest point people and, um, I actually was, um, first runner up when that happened. And then I lost my space. Uh, <laughs> I, had, I had to change my flight. And, um, you know, I remember calling my husband at the restaurant. I was like, you are never going to believe this. And he's like, you're kidding me. <laughs> um, so yeah. And so that was fun. And the three gym, I was the only woman in the top four, the three gentlemen, um, my dad loves this story, but one was from Chicago, one was from New York, and Michelle at the time, I think, was at the French Laundry in, in, in Napa, so it was like, mm-hmm. 
uh, and on the square in Tarbray. So yeah. That was really fun. <laughs> oh, that is such a great story. Well, congratulations. I mean, that is so crazy to even be a part of that competition, let alone finishing in the finals. Um, so that's awesome. I love that story. Um, so lastly, I just want to talk about your memoir that you have recently written called life after windows. So tell us a little bit about this memoir and obviously it took you some time to complete it. And, you know, I want to hear about how difficult it was to write this book. Um, and when you finally knew that it was ready to be published and ready to be complete, um, walk us through that process a little bit. Yeah. So it was journaling, you know, I've always been a journaler and, and this has been journaling since, since the days before the, the years before nine 11. And, um, I went to a women's leadership conference in Napa fall of 19 and I met a woman who had written a book, um, like a technical book on, on Napa wineries. And I said, look, I got to just pick your brain while we're here. I didn't even know her very well. I said, I've got this book that is just pages and pages and pages of me writing. And I really want to put it out there, but I'm scared and I don't know how to do it. And she said, you know, firstly, you've already got it written, you know, um, and it is scary to put it out there, especially when it's personal. And she said, but, you know, in two years, it's going to be the 20 year anniversary of 9-11. And she's like, wouldn't that be so special for you to do that? And I, I was like, yeah, it would, you know, and I won't, I want this out there. Mm-hmm. I want this out there um, for me, you know, and, and I want it for my, my, my children. And um, I want it. I, I started thinking of it as, you know, every single one of us are in pain at some point. And some of us just live with deep pain. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything that I can say or write that gives someone hope or promise for, you know, a new day, then I'm just holding this energy and that's kind of selfish. Mm-hmm. And so um, on September 11th, 2020, I woke up probably at like two in the morning and took the chapter that's on 9-11 and I posted on on my Instagram account and said, I'm a year from now, I'm putting this in my memoir and it's coming out. And, you know, once you put it out there on social media, there is no going back. Yep. <laughs> and so it was great for me because it was like, you got to do it. Like you've said it, you've told people you were going to do it. You, you've said the deadline and, um, Mm -hmm. I knew I was going to self-publish. Um, I also knew I needed an editor and I had a bunch of different conversations with a bunch of different people. And I finally found, um, this woman, Sarah Stratton of Redwood, um, digital publishing. And, um, it was fairly late when we found each other in March of 2021. So we, um, did a lot of work Yeah, um, and, and we got it done and, you know, the books did not get to me until, um, the afternoon of September 9th. Oh my gosh. 
<laughs> you were dying. 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 <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Well, I am so excited. I have this on my list of books to read and purchase. And for anyone listening who is interested in 9-11 and specifically Inez's story, please look up this book. It's called Life After Windows, and it's Inez's memoir of her experience with 9-11. And so please, everyone, go out and purchase this book. I'm so excited to read it because I am just absolutely fascinated with 9-11. And so I'm so excited to read this. I want to just close it out with a fun fact about you that I do with all of my guests. And I'm sure this might be pretty difficult for you, but we'll see. Um, And my question for you is, which are your top three favorite wines of all time? So number one is Beacart Salmon Brut Rosé. It's the... um, a champagne. And if I could afford it, it would be <laughs> my refrigerator. I, I, I normally get to drink a bottle at Christmas. I just love, love, love that wine. Um, and then number two is Albert Boxler Riesling um, from Zummerberg, which is um, a, a, a vineyard in Alsace. And that is also one of my just to die for wines. Um, and then three, oh gosh, um, <laughs> I'm going to say, um, the Trian Rosé from Provence. So that's, um, one that where Stephen and I worked and Jeremy, who owns it as a dear friend and, uh, it comes out in the spring and, and we drink a lot of it in the summertime. So <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Uh, that'll be my third. I love wine so much. So I'm excited to look these up and, you know, they might be out of my price range, but I can still look. <laughs> well, the tree in is a great everyday one. So Perfect. every other day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, awesome. So Inez, where can we find you on social media? Where can we follow what you're doing and what you're working on? Sure. So um, I'm a big fan of Instagram and that's pretty much it. I, I, I will check Facebook periodically. I do not have Snapchat. I do not have TikTok. Um, what else? Twitter. Eh. Um, but I, I, it's really original. It's Inez Ribicello is my handle. And then it'll show the three um, businesses where I spend most of my time uh, uh, in my bio. Perfect. Um, Well, Inez, thank you so much for sharing such difficult and personal experiences, Um, but we have learned so much from you and your story is so interesting. I'm so excited to read your memoir. Um, I bet it's just phenomenal. So thank you so much for being here and speaking with me today. Thank you, Elle. The pleasure was mine. I really appreciate you having me. 